morning, good afternoon, and good evening here in India. So we kick off our third quote-unquote virtual fireside chat. Today I have none other than Mohammed Yunus going to talk about how's the josh of people and employees in India to revive the Indian economy. Let me just step back a little bit. Our last fireside chat, Dr. Jagdish Seth mentioned that COVID is all about employment and people. So we had no other than Gallup, which has been doing polls and surveys for so many years to talk about how is the sentiment of the people with respect to their jobs, their healthcare status, and the lockdown as well. Let me introduce Mohammed. Mohammed is the editor at Gallup. He has been doing webinars and representing Gallup at various forums. Mohammed represents Gallup as its voice piece, not only in, in TV and other medias, but he also leads the public opinion piece of Gallup to the world. Today, Mohammed is going to talk about allotment. One, how is the sentiment in India versus the other parts of the world? Since we also talked about the last, in the last five-style chat, it's all about India, China, and US. So today, Mohammed is also going to premiere the US presidential poll and who's leading and how does that going to impact India-China-US relationships as well. So these are few takers from the fireside chat today as well. And I leave the podium to Mohammed to take it over. Thank you. Thank you, Kapil. Thank you, everybody tuning in. As you can see, we have basically all the world's problems uh, laid out before us to solve in this hour. Um, I think what would uh, make sense is really to start with what is Gallup? What, and then maybe go into what have we been doing in India in specific. Uh, what we've been learning through those data. And then we maybe we can shift over to U.S. perceptions. I think also trade and perceptions, American perceptions of China and India be trade would be interesting. But what is Gallup? Gallup is an uh, organization that has existed since the 1930s. Uh, we research uh, to help leaders make better decisions about who they lead, whether that is um, on the social societal level, uh, on the local community level, within organizations, in the private sector, in the public sector. But we are always trying to use research, often survey research, but also other data sources to really, in an objective uh, uh, science uh, uh, backed up uh, statistically, but also just in terms of psychology and, and social behavior and human behavior, trying to understand how can research help us understand that behavior and what are the pressure points uh, for making change in your organization, in your community, in your society. So uh, in 1970, actually, was the first time George Gallup himself tried to do a poll of the world. Obviously, he was an American. He's, he grew up in Iowa. Um, but from very early on, he started developing relationships with public opinion uh, researchers from, from as many parts of the world as he could. In 1970, we did a study that uh, covered two-thirds of the world, world population, and it wasn't focused on politics at all. It was actually focused uh, much more on the issue dealing with now. It's how people are living their lives. Um, how are they accessing basic, etc. Um, fast forward to 2015, and we started uh, basically taking it upon ourselves to build consistent primary sampling units now across 150 plus countries. Uh, the World Poll since 2015 has tracked how citizens are living their lives in 96% basically of uh, the world's population. Obviously, it's a huge undertaking to do in any regard, but it's also equally challenging to do in a way 
where I think a country like India is a great example of the local realities that change from place to place, even within a country, let alone across the whole globe. So we really partnered with everybody from Jim Wolfenson from the World Bank to Deepak Chopra, who's a Gallup senior scientist, uh, to experts at the United Nations, at the World Bank, to really understand how can we come up with a questionnaire that can really compare how citizens are living their lives uh, from country to country. India, of course, has been a really unique and, and fascinating place for us to, to, to do our work. While I personally have never had the honor of visiting India, I am originally Egyptian. I'm said Muhammad Yunus. I was actually going to make a joke and say I'm the other Muhammad Yunus, uh, the younger from, Muhammad Yunus. From this side of the world. <laughs> Yeah, from this side of the world. But, you know, I, I spent, uh, I've been with Gal for 12 years. I've spent uh, 10 of those years working with the Whirlpool, particularly in uh, the areas geographically in the Middle East, but also subject wise in terms of uh, Muslim West relations. It was a very big focus that we had after 9 11. Um, and asking about religious extremism, um, uh, terrorism, et cetera. In India and in the entire region, really a, a wonderful experience, uh, but not only that, it was a powerful way to educate the Western world on the complexities of these issues um, across the world, particularly across the development. So the World Poll is really designed to be not an American company's attempt to poll the world. Uh, what we do is essentially through our regional directors, who most of them are from the regions uh, they lead research on, uh, are essentially training local individuals, local survey research experts within country on our methodology to conduct um, as organic as possible local experiences in our interviews. Uh, for example, in India, uh, we poll in over 10 languages, um, and all of our uh, uh, interviews are done by people essentially from the professional researchers, but essentially people from the... So we really try to make it as as uh, indigenous an experience will as possible. A few things jump out from our India World Poll data that I think are really critical for this audience. Obviously, COVID changes everything, um, but... And, and the data I will share with you predates from 2019, just the end of 2019. However, what we've learned uh, in tracking COVID, at least here in the U.S. on a daily basis, is a lot of the underlying challenges only become more critical and essential through this COVID crisis. I think even the George Floyd situation is a great example of uh, pre-existing uh, social challenges aggravated by everybody quarantining and, and uh, a health crisis and things sort of take on a, a, an energy of their own. So in India, what have we been finding? Um, on the life evaluation front, I think is where I want to start with the India data. Um, it's been very interesting to us to track uh, life evaluation in the entire world. Track it through asking questions. Essentially. On a scale from zero to 10, where zero is the worst possible life you can imagine, and 10 is the best possible life you can imagine. Evaluate your life today and evaluate your life in five. What we have seen across uh, the entire world, essentially, from developed uh, economy, mature economies to emerging economies, uh, is how people rate their lives are actually, is actually a much a better indicator of how things are really going in that society than many of the economic metrics that we track. So some of the famous slides that we have, and I didn't want to bore you with here at Gallup, are slides that essentially show life evaluation trends vis-a-vis uh, -vis GDP per capita trends in places like Egypt and Tunisia before the uprisings, in places like the Ukraine before uh, the Maidan revolution and the ensuing conflict, um, in places like the United Kingdom before the vote for Brexit, 
in places like the United States uh, before the vote for President Trump. And frankly, in places like the United States, in the lead up to the situation, Floyd, because we saw the largest drop in that exact metric, the thriving rate of Americans that we've seen in his just before the George Floyd situation exploded. So how does India look on this metric? India, it looks very concerning on this metric. Life evaluation in India has been declining gradually now for five years. 2019 had a very significant dip, um, not only in people's assessment of their future life, but also, more importantly, in people's assessment of their current life. One of the conundrums um, in our data and, and one of the things we've really been trying to understand in India, um, and this is where the conversation turns a little bit to politics, is why are leadership approval ratings so steady, let's say, um, relatively high, despite the fact that life evaluation ratings have been plummeting? In most countries, what we see is people's assessment of their own financial situation tends to track with their life evaluation, but their assessment of leadership tends well. Um, in India, the data are looking a little bit different, and we are trying to work hard to understand why on so many levels. Obviously, the answer is always it depends and it's local. Um, but one of the challenges is in using life evaluation metrics to sort of answer political questions. And that's what we're always trying to avoid uh, because what's really important and more importantly, the leadership approval in today's world that is connected, uh, where social media plays a huge role in how people are engaging uh, at least perceptions of their leadership is more important than presidential or prime ministership approval is really life evaluation, how people are rating their lives. Now, Leaders have to manage um, those realities, those local life evaluation realities. I think in India, what's really fascinating is the timing of the COVID crisis. Uh, just after uh, a series of really uh, economic challenges or fiscal challenges India faced, whether it was the demonetization uh, uh, policy that created a little bit of turbulence uh, for the government, or um, even more recent events uh, that we've seen uh, since past November, uh, with protests uh, for various policies. It's really important for us to see how uh, citizens will continue to evaluate their own local lives, despite the narrative that leaders are presenting uh, for how they are managing the crisis. Um, at Gallup, we have, since our inception, and we will always remain uh, neutral and nonpartisan, uh, we certainly poll on uh, uh, citizens' lives in various countries, but we have no uh, position either way on policy issues or, or politicians, whether it's here in the United States um, or across the world. But it is interesting um, to note that India does have this discrepancy where life evaluation metrics and all of the financial, uh, essentially economic metrics, whether they're, is it a good time to find a, a job in your local community? How is the national economy doing, et cetera? They all continue uh, to decline, despite the fact that leadership approval uh, uh, is holding steady, at least for the current moment. Um, Just a quick question here. Yeah. Was this uh, evaluation done <clears throat> before the elections or after the elections, post-election? Because you see, post the election, obviously our economy were also on the downturn. And we had to put in certain economic and tax stimulus to revive the the economy. That was the time we were kind of going towards the worst economic growth performance in the economy in perhaps five or six years. So 
I think that kind of tend to correlate with with your findings, correct? Yes. Well, actually, we've been we've been po- polling before and after. Um, the data in uh, that I cited on life evaluation was just before the election, as well as uh, leadership approval. But you know, India is is a country, obviously, where other organizations are also polling on leadership approval. Some more responsibly than others. But what's what's really interesting is to compare capital the situation in India with the situation here in the United States, where leadership has taken a very serious hit in uh, their public support since the crisis has un- certainly that the U.S. has been at least on, on record more of an epicenter uh, of the COVID crisis um, than India, I guess, at large. Obviously, data on all of that remains kind of in a nascent phase. Um, but from from where it looks now, I think it's, it's interesting the timing of the COVID crisis and the forced lockdown, uh, you know, may have come at a very politically opportune moment, frankly, uh, for a leadership who was already facing a public that was pretty down and remains pretty down on the economy. Now, that being said, um, one of the things uh, that's very clear and one of the benefits we have of tracking uh, these economies and countries since 2015 is that, it, it you know, the Indian economy and the Indian people are very resilient. Um, we've seen many um, hills and valleys uh, throughout the, the past 50 in India. So there's nothing to say that um, as the economy of the world and of India continues to open up again, um, that things can't turn around uh, economically and, and certainly those tend to have the biggest impact on perception. Obviously, uh, there's no way to skirt around the the, the, the other political, um, sociocultural challenges that the country is facing now, uh, just before COVID, uh, we saw a series of uh, protests uh, and some turning violent. So as uh, the world reopens and India reopens, uh, none of those challenges go away. And I think um, those challenges will not only be critical, obviously, for the citizens of India, but really for the perception of India um, in in its markets, in the Western world particularly. Um, maybe this is a good time to pivot to American perceptions of India and trade. Uh, Kapil, what are the things that we've been polling Americans on for generations now? Is their attitudes on trade, on free trade, uh, particularly a trade with different parts of the world, different actors. Um, Americans tend to be, and of course, President Trump has made trade a really central part of um, his rhetoric, his policy decisions, uh, his posi- positioning with China has been more aggressive than we've seen from really any president um, in the past several administrations, uh, if not longer. So China and trade really before COVID and before the, the, the racial tensions here in the United States have flared up again was really a focus here in the United States. Uh, we have a great report that we issued months ago called uh, Trade in the Era of Trump. And it basically goes through and shows um, different generations, uh, decades back of Americans, their perceptions on the role of trade. Is it something good or bad for America? Is it good or bad for them as workers in America? Uh, is it good or bad for them, assumers of goods? Uh, wh- basically, what we find is Americans are very pro-trade. Uh, despite the rhetoric uh, uh, of the past several years, Americans have remained uh, relatively positive on trade. Uh, Ameri- <coughs> most Americans think that trade uh, enables international trade, enables them to um, access goods at a cheaper cost. Uh, most Americans think that uh, free trade internationally also is a net positive for the U.S. economy. When we ask Americans about international trade and jobs in America, there certainly is concern. Uh, and that's really where we see the most um, sort of isolationist, if you will, responses to trade question. So in terms of inner free trade, generally, Americans have are and remain very pro free trade. If we've seen any change, it's really 
been a little bit with uh, Republican respondents, um, but again, not dr- not as dramatic as the political rhetoric out of Washington. Where um, things do get interesting is when we ask about trade with various actors, um, countries like Japan and Canada, we've asked about trade with them now for generations. Japan in the in the 80s and 90s had a very negative uh, perception. Trade with Japan had a very negative sort of uh, brand with U.S. respondents in our polling. That's changed dramatically. Um, India is a country that relative compared to many other uh, developing nations has a very positive brand in the United States. Um, and I think, think thinking strategically as uh, Indian business leaders, um, the, the comparison of American attitudes vis-a-vis trade with India compared to trade with China is very different. China, in fact, is the only country that we ask about where we basically ask Americans, do you think that this country's trade policies with the U.S. are fair or not? Over 60% of Americans say that they don't feel that trade with China is fair. It's the only country that we ask about where a majority of Americans actually give that response. So the Trump administration has really tapped into something uh, very real in America. Despite the fact that Americans are very pro-trade, there is very serious um, and long-held grievance about the role uh, uh, trade with China has played, uh, particularly in the U.S. economy, uh, particularly in what it's meant for jobs um, in uh, uh, middle-class America. When you look at the economics of the United States, obviously there's no, no uh, briefing or lecture on that, but the middle class has essentially hollowed out, and a big part of why that's been the case in the U.S. Um, is because of you know the trade, the way the trade relates China works vis-a-vis creating manufactured goods at, at the lower costs and and moving jobs see. So those concerns will remain. I think um, irrespective of what happens in November, those concerns predate President Trump. Um, they will continue uh, to be a major focus, I think, of uh, the United States populace when it comes to trade and free trade internationally. Um, obviously, uh, President, on a personal level, President Trump and uh, Prime Minister Modi have had a very warm relationship, unlike his pres- his relationship with many other global leaders. Uh, but I think, you know, it, we, we like always uh, are, take the long view on things. And I think the inherent interests of the United States and India uh, will continue to converge irrespective of who's in the White House. Um, and primarily, that's probably because of the dynamic with China that's unfolding. Uh, and it's also, uh, honestly, primarily because of uh, the fact that India is a democracy, uh, just like the U.S. with its challenges and its flaws, um, India uh, is organized completely differently uh, uh, than, obviously, China. Um, and Americans uh, uh, note that. I mean, I'm, one of the things I've done um, in my time at Gallup, as I mentioned, is gone really deep on perceptions of America in different parts of the world. Um, and one of the things that um, Americans admire about themselves and the world admires about them is uh, liberty and democracy. Um, Americans congratulate themselves on it far too much. Um, and we see that in our polling, frankly. Um, but those those connections are certainly um, uh, very visceral to the American psyche. And, and we see that in our data. Um, so U.S. perceptions uh, on India are relatively positive when you compare them to China, although perceptions on China have been pretty negative. Perceptions on Russia, of course, have taken quite a hit uh, since um, the uh, election interference situation in the last presidential contest here. Um, so that's all. That all sort of predates COVID. I think now America is really living in a moment where we're passing, uh, not necessarily passing COVID by, but entering a new moment uh, with the situation with George Floyd. But more importantly, because the situation with George Floyd 
is not in any way in the United States. Uh, we've tracked uh, perceptions of black Americans in the nation ad nauseum uh, since basically the 1950s and 60s. What is new is a sudden focus, uh, the national focus on the issue um, and its potential impact on the election in November. Obviously, it is truly impossible to so predict. People are really wanting to hear what's the what's the latest presidential approval yeah, as well. So this, excellent. Uh, yeah. So this maybe that's um, first. I want to make it clear. We actually exited the the election prediction uh, space uh, several cycles, and uh, and I want to mention why because I think this group of uh, people who appreciate models and math and statistics and numbers will will understand. George Gallup became very famous for presidential election. But he actually was sort of using it as a public um, experiment. His passion was really about finding a way to sample respondents in a representative way uh, on everything, on the way they were living, on everything from how they're living their own personal lives to the movies they like to go to, to, you know, what they do on the weekend. Um, he used the presidential contest because it was has a dichotomous outcome as really a platform to capture national attention on the sampling method that he was using being accurate. Um, so we have continued, you know, that legacy since he started in the 30s and 40s. We continued that really through uh, the mid-2000s. Um, but we've entered a space now where a lot of other organizations are doing that. They're doing a great job doing right. that. And it, to a challenging degree, honestly, for us, a lot of organizations are doing it by averaging polls that are collected with very different methodologies. So what we've done is really um, recommitted to measure leadership approval. We always will collect leadership approval everywhere we can, particularly here in the United States. Um, but trying to focus more on those longer term shifts in American society that other organizations relying on survey research kind of don't focus on because it's not in the everyday. So that's kind of my, my, my preference. Um, as I said, we still continue to release presidential approval numbers. Literally just 15 minutes ago, we released Donald Trump's most recent approval rating, which is 39%, which is a 10% drop since our last measurement. Um, and the last time we saw a drop that significant was uh, in 1990, President Bill Clinton. So it gives you a taste of the degree to which the decline um, is very precipitous. 10% drop in approval with this method. It is an RDD uh, uh, phone, landline, and cell phone method in the United States. 10% drop is uh, declining. Um, that being said, What's even more interesting is uh, perceptions of how Donald Trump handles the economy. 64% of Americans before this even started with George Floyd said that they disapprove of the way Donald Trump is handling race relations in the United States. But his strong suit has always been how he handles the economy. Uh, with this latest poll out of the field, what's really interesting and what caught my attention is Republicans are now beginning to drop in their assessment of how Donald Trump is handling the economy itself. And that really um, has been, first of all, before anything to do with President Trump, has been the most important indicator uh, of a president's, an incumbent president's viability um, going into an election. The economy, uh, and or has at least, uh, presidential politics and perceptions of it uh, for generations here in the United States, when we ask Americans in every way we have, What's the most important policy issue when you vote for a president? It's always number one, the economy, number two, health care, because, of course, health care is the largest spend in the U.S. economy. Um, so I don't think most of the respondents know that, but it, it makes sense to us as and, um, and, and as, as informed uh, folks such as yourselves. So it's really about this moment is really about understanding how the president will navigate this situation, how the country is already reacting to the covid crisis. But on top of that, 
how his opponents, the Democrats, um, will also navigate. I think one of the the very easy things to assume that's very wrong um, about U.S. politics is that the is that this is a net positive for the Democrats. Everybody's focused on race relations and minorities. It means the Democrats have a shoe in. Um, I'd say not so fast. Uh, not because uh, the left or, 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 or the people protesting for Black Lives Matter love Trump, um, but because things have changed at a very slow rate on this issue, there is a considerable amount of frustration on the far left with the Democratic Party. And, and that is also becoming very evident in um, just the public conversation here in the United States. Um, so this is an old challenge for the United States, but it's really a new moment. Um, so it's also in historic. this new moment, there are a whole lot of implications, which means India needs to now look at a shift back to the Democrat, depending on who now gets the race to the White House, which also means that the geopolitical tension between India-China that is brewing up would also perhaps ease down because China sees India as a threat because of whatever the the reasons that are apparent to China. What's also very important now in this scenario is how do you think that with whatever ratings of your president and the current rating that you have, approval rating of the Indian uh, prime minister, do you think there is going to be a pivot in the relationships between India and, uh, and the US or same depth of the relationship would grow um, post elections as well? What's your sense there? My, my sense uh, very strongly is that irrespective of who wins the presidential election in the United States, the relationship between the U.S. and India will continue to deepen. Um, I want to be very clear that's not based on polling we've done, but it's just based on the qualitative uh, analysis that we also do in looking at how the global order is shifting, um, tracking uh, not only financial relationships, but security and military cooperation and relationships. Um, the, the primary challenge to the United States and its role in the world today um, is a rising China. No way to really uh, ignore that. It's, it's the elephant in the There's a lot of fear mongering around that. And I want to be very responsible with this as well. Um, as a Muslim, right, in America, it's very easy to uh, become sort of anti-China uh, in a, the American narrative. And I don't mean to in any way support that, but we need to be very honest about American perception of China, and they're not positive. Um, and they're not positive, frankly, for a lot of the reasons the president has voiced. Um, I don't think that the things he said actually are unique to the right wing in the United States. His approach has been different. Um, his approach has been different really than any other president we've seen in modern history. Um, but those underlying issues uh, uh, absolutely will continue. Uh, I cannot imagine uh, uh, anyone coming to the White House and sort of, uh, you know, stepping away from the idea that the relation, the trade relationship with the United States and China needs to be uh, reevaluated. Uh, I can't imagine anybody stepping up and, and sort of blowing off the Huawei issue as uh, non-essential. We saw today uh, the United Kingdom uh, was sort of rectifying its position with regards to that issue and, and NATO making a statement. So these are interests that endure election. Um, these are interests that are very long-standing uh, for the United States. You all could probably speak to the situation in India, obviously, much more effectively than I can. But from, from our perception here in Washington, um, it's hard to imagine uh, a, a a more important challenge facing the United States forward, aside from COVID, 
aside from um, uh, uh, the race relations issue, aside from the presidential election. These are this is really the structural challenge of the United States when it looks out to the world. There are a, a, a plethora of structural challenges when it looks inward, and we're seeing that uh, with the George Floyd situation. We're seeing that with income disparities in the United States. We're seeing that with the failure of the healthcare system. Like, don't get me wrong, there are a lot of problems in America. Um, and that's, I think, see a lot of different parties, frankly, um, that are at least in their rhetoric and what they propose as solutions. When it comes to international uh, trade and the dynamic with China, India, and Asia, uh, I think you'll find very, very little uh, by way of change. So that being said, a, let me just also add, I think one of the most unpredictable things uh, President Trump has done is stepping away from Obviously, you know, you all probably have a much better feel of exactly where those negotiations would be if they were reignited now. Obviously, the deal that was on the table is gone. Life changes and, and things have moved on. But I would not rule out um, a, a democratic iteration that would try to at least re-engage Asia uh, through a trade lens in a way that has a very geopolitical uh, uh, focus and strategy behind it. I think we'd all agree that TPP was, would have been a massive um, economic boom to many of those economies, but really a really big part of it was also geo-security. Um, so I think those interests will remain um, and I wouldn't rule out something, uh, uh, an attempt at that again um, in future. Well, let's just focus back when we started, you know, employment. Uh, yes. <clears throat> well, we know that the Trump's rating has got a 10-point beating. Um, and I guess the um, unemployment numbers in the U.S., like in India, are at all-time high and likely to even go higher. I guess this whole uh, situation of uh, racialism kind of got the focus out of employment generation to something else yeah. which obviously uh, i'm not sure how it may impact uh, both the government and the leaders at the top but the current uh, you know and you guys are also doing a lot in the in the in the company culture and employee Absolutely. side as well i wanted to pick your uh, thoughts over there you see uh, a lot of the audience here uh, are you know ceos and you know cxos uh, in in large companies and and, and, and organizations you know and you know my office Offline chat with have with them have been uh, you know this is something that they've never been trained to handle a COVID situation of course kind of and then post that the type of restructuring and downsizing of of their organizations many of them have been fearing uh, a lot and perhaps some of them have also been thinking about you know giving up mm -hmm. so this is the reason why these fireside chat have been you know initiated by us in terms of you know it's all not doomsday yeah uh, so. Could you probably give us some thoughts in terms of what's the employee sentiment, you know, employer-employee sentiment, which you also cover out. Um, that's that's an area I would love to kind of talk. And after that, you know, your hunger poll that you do, because we've had a lot of uh, optics around people and migrant labor, uh, you, know, you know, not getting their food and that's why they had to migrate back to their villages yeah. out here. Uh, could you probably uh, throw light on these two issues, uh, which are very, very pertinent here in the COVID and post-COVID scenario? Absolutely. Um, so most of, of most of you have probably heard of Gallup because of everything we've been talking about, social social polling and politics and economics. Um, the other thing we do, and actually most of our revenue is generated from using the tools we've developed studying societies to bring them into the workplace 
and study workers, managers, and customers to understand the human dynamics of attachment and engagement between all three of those. Um, we have uh, 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 used those tools. We have something called the Q12. We have a lot of other metrics where we measure employee engagement. We've done this literally in with millions of employees all over the world. Um, most of our biggest clients in this space are uh, multinational corporations that have workforces uh, across regions. So we've had an opportunity to really study uh, what happens in a workplace in a time of crisis. Um, on top of that, and I'll share those on top of that, we've also been measuring employee engagement in the United States on a daily basis since the COVID crisis occurred. And we've been measuring the employees' engagement within, our, of course, our clients' organizations since this started. Um, so what have we learned? First of all, counterintuitively, generally in times of crisis, um, well, let me, before times of crisis, let's talk about why, what is employee engagement and why does it? Essentially, what the, what the research show is that if your employee um, is, feels that the leadership of their organization is committed to something they believe in, as an employee, I feel like I get to do what I do best every day. My talents are, my voice matters. Um, I have an input into how my organization does what it does, uh, you are much more likely to be considered what we call an engagee. There are really three uh, uh, factors. It's an index score. Um, you're either uh, actively disengaged, disengaged, or engaged. If you think of a boat, people who are disengaged are just sitting on the boat. People who are engaged are rowing in the direction the manager is trying to. People who are actively disengaged are drilling holes in the bottom of the ship as you're trying to manage. Um, so we've measured all of these different dynamics in different industries, its impact on safety in a factory, its impact on uh, a bottom line in a, in a, in a PE, etc., etc. So what we learn in times of crisis is that employee engagement actually hangs on more than you think. Those employees that you have that are your stars, that are your engaged employees, moments of crisis actually charge them to become more committed to the mission of the organization they're a part of. The challenge is that only lasts so long and you run into fatigue uh, weeks, months, depending on the crisis expected to be. So the other finding that we've discovered, and I think this is what's really relevant to um, most of the people watching because you're, most of the people watching are not just an employee somewhere. Their, their critical role is to manage others. 70% of all variation when it comes to employee engagement ties back in our research, millions of interviews over decades, ties back to the quality of the manager who's leading that. So if you're leading an organization right now, it's really important for, and I say this, you know, as an employee and a manager, so I have a conflict of interest. It's really important to reach out to your employees and do the things that we all know create engaged workplaces. But it's most critical for you to make sure you have the right manager in the right situation, they're getting the right support, and they're leading with their strengths. It doesn't necessarily um, give the manager whatever they need. As, as, as the person who is the executive, and we have to deal with this not only with our clients, even internally in our own organization, is this manager the right person to handle this assignment in this moment? Is this manager the kind of person that steps up in times of crisis and or are they a person that leads with needing process and um, explanation? Is this person really 
uh, the right fit for this moment. And I think that's where uh, the strength science comes in. We have also so something called... Just to question here, because the most committed of our front-end soldier were the healthcare workers. Uh-huh. And how have you seen their engagement dipping? Uh, is the fatigue coming in? Is their motivation levels going down? And what is your survey results talking about that? Because they are the front-end soldiers who are marching in the COVID. And they have been marching now for almost two months. Yep. Plus months Absolutely. or more Absolutely. where is we, what is the trend you are seeing there so we've only tracked that here in the united states but what we found is actually what we learned is basically true everywhere in the world it really matters where you're asking the healthcare work this crisis is very um uh, people who are uh, essential response uh, first responders healthcare workers in environments and in cities that haven't really been hit very hard uh, haven't been impacted that badly um, and don't feel that, you know, anything is really very different. They remain committed, etc. People who have been hit by the worst of it uh, certainly have had a very difficult time. But I think with healthcare workers in particular, you know, mission and purpose in our research is one of the most important factors in employee engagement. Um, and it doesn't mean that you have to work at a nonprofit. Uh, you can be committed to the mission and purpose of your organization and maximizing returns for shareholders. But if you if it's something that you can get fired up about, um, it's one of the most important factors in it. And with healthcare, you can only imagine uh, on a normal day, in a normal situation, that their mission and purpose is extremely high. It's only increased uh, in these situations. That's not in any way to negate the challenges that they face and the shortages that many of these teams uh, have faced in the most developed economies, let alone uh, the developing uh, parts of the world. So we don't have data on the healthcare workers across India yet, um, but we do have data across the United States. And we definitely uh, have been doing similar research with our clients who are healthcare providers. So a lot of the organizations we work with are essentially hospital systems, and we have been um, tracking uh, these metrics with regards to their teams that are engaged in these. But I'm, I mean, obviously, I'm not at liberty to share the results of those uh, findings, but they're consistent with generally what we find, which is what, what I was sharing earlier. Engagement holds on in times of crisis. Um, uh, uh, people who have high mission and purpose and feel their organization is hearing them are the ones that are really going to shine through moments of difficulty. And the most important thing you all need to be doing right now is focusing on the quality and the approach of your manager. Um, so Josh is still there uh, in the healthcare workers, even at the front line in, in the cities which are most affected or the or the places where they're most affected. The Josh of the frontline healthcare workers is still still on. Yeah, and I think it's important to 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 mention also at least here again. This is all local here in at least this part of the United States in the mid east in the northeast corridor. Um, it feels like the worst is behind us for this round of the crisis of the of the virus so I, I would only expect I mean we know for a, for for a fact that for example hospitals in New York are being able to uh, provide you know more services to non-covid related uh, situations non-essential uh, medical services are coming back online so it feels and in, in our data we people feel 
in the U.S. at least that we're past the worst of it for this round. Um, but obviously, the expectations of a second round are very daunting, uh, both economically and also we don't want to take for granted what we find with the frontline healthcare workers, the first crisis to the second. I, I think the shortcomings were massive, um, and the frustration with them was equally expressed in the polling, definitely, that we've done here in the United States. So if there is a second wave, uh, God forbid, uh, I think it's safe to say that people, at least here in the U.S. and in the po- and in Western Europe, and uh, we've polled in 10 markets across Western Europe on these issues, they expect a much more coordinated and effective result. Um, and leadership on every level that doesn't have to do with science or a hospital essentially got very bad marks uh, here in the United States. Um, when we so ask people, let's how, focus how, back how, now. Yeah, let's focus back to India on our topic, the Josh part. How do you compare, or how would you rank India in your world poll rankings? The resilience of the people and the employees in bouncing back. Are they in the top ten, or where are they? Where is India in the 150 country ranking? So because that's the, the the key takeaway we should probably you know, be putting out to the people out here that look, you know, you're not at the worst, and that's where the politics and the semantics comes. Okay. India has that bounce back uh, capability the people are resilient and and things will ba- will revive faster well look i uh, certainly I, I you know as as a as a organization and as a person i i i wish india all the best the data is challenging at the moment um so i don't want to sugarcoat the reality uh before this crisis hit employee engagement in india was declining just as much uh and in uh congruence with the assessments of the economic situation as well as life evaluation metrics those metrics tend to um, uh, correlate anyway um but like i said earlier uh, uh, India has been, like the rest of the global economy, been through a really serious uh, a downturn in 28, 29, uh, 10 for many countries that didn't feel it in 08 and have come back. Uh, and we see it, we saw it in our data on every metric. There's no reason not to believe that that story won't happen again. Um, the fact that we've been doing uh, these polls now for 15 years will give us a really good sense of how quick the recovery will be. We know that the decline was much more precipitous than 2008, whether it's in economic assessments or um, in people's life evaluations in the, in the parts of the world we've been able to cover. India is no different. Um, but, you know, there's no reason why the most... Uh, 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 hard working of economies, if you will, won't come back faster than the other ones. I think the other thing to keep in mind, of course, is um, there are structural uh, uh, realities that can change the situation in India rather quickly. Um, I know um, uh, the, 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 the cost of the currency, the value of currency and the role it plays in emerging markets is really critical and is a is a frankly a, a control valve that mature economies don't have so as a developing economy i would expect india like most to kind of start heating up the fastest and coming back the hardest uh, much faster than the mature economies, but that's really just economic history sort of repeating itself. So I think to close out, I'll just say um, India has been... I just want, uh, before I close out, uh, the yeah. hunger, because yes. that's a project uh, that I was working uh, very closely Absolutely. with your chairman and your managing partner, uh, both the Cliftons uh, in India. John, uh, John and Jim, together, uh, we've been trying to see this whole hunger in India. One and, of the things... Uh, and yeah, during the COVID, there was a lot of uh, you know movement of labor because of reasons uh, in the media or publicized or politicized was that the migrant labor didn't have food or didn't have 
enough uh, you know provisions to sustain although on the other side the political uh, class said no they have been provided for and what not uh, what's your re- uh, latest hun- hunger and uh, you know sustainability side of things uh, saying about india yeah, um, first of all we've been using the world poll you mentioned jim and john uh, all of us at gallup are committed uh, to using the world poll to try to create data that where we can track these closely on a national level, um, but also across the world. We're currently tracking three of the SDGs uh, with partners. Uh, we're doing financial inclusion with the World Bank. We're doing um, uh, uh, access to food with FAO at the United Nations, and we're doing modern slavery uh, with Welcome in the UK. Um, India, you know, the data out of India predates this situation, so I certainly can't speak to what's happening now. What we know before is that India was making progress on all three of those SDGs to some degree. The large challenge is, of course, going to be access to food and people slipping back into poverty. Since this COVID crisis has uh, taken hold, we've recon- we've uh, recommitted with some of the partners I just mentioned to now begin tracking how the COVID crisis is impacting these SD-related uh, uh, conditions in uh, developing parts of the world. India is number one on our list uh, to try to track that. So I do, we don't have data today. Of course, with the lockdown, it's also been a challenge to get out field. Um, in India, we do face-to-face interviewing, so that hasn't been possible. But we have been extremely busy preparing for the moment we can uh, in crafting the kinds of questionnaires that can really get to the answer of your question. So I'm sorry I don't have a an answer for today's reality. But before, uh, we know that India was making progress and like the rest of the world has been hit very hard uh, by this crisis. So, uh, Mohammed, that's a topic for uh, another chat which I would invite once you're ready for with the information. But the key takeaway here has been that President Trump's uh, rating has taken a beating and that has issues on on the India-China and the trade relationship. The second thing is the resilience factor with the employee and the front-end healthcare workers seem to be now stable. The fear of losing jobs and, and people are not so negative, I would say, in terms of their future outlook. Although... India has been on the downward curve for the last five years. What's your parting comment that India should do to improve the rating at, uh, at that you've been tracking that has been falling for the last five years? I guess there is correlation to the GDP, I guess. But uh, post-lockdown and recovery, I think those correlations will come, uh, will continue in a positive way once the GDP growth happens or India goes back up on the GDP curve. Absolutely. I think my, you know, um, parting thoughts would be it's, it's a really tough time for the entire world. It's a time for people with grit to step up and uh, deliver. I would, I would never uh, second guess India's grit on anything or its workers or its people. Um, the challenges that, that India will face now are going to be very real when it comes to just food and shelter primarily and poverty. But, you know, some of the people on this call are going to be the people who step up and really help India address those challenges. Despite COVID, we are now in a world where uh, we have more access to how people are living their lives in a data-driven way than ever before. 
We are always looking for partners to deepen our engagement, particularly in uh, developing economies, to uh, to be able to track that more effectively. India is a is a continent, um, so like all things, answers are local. Uh, I encourage you all to reach out to us if you think we can help you dealing with your local problems and local realities, whether it's in the markets you're engaged in uh, or in the communities you're touching. Well, it's been a pleasure speaking with you, Mohammed, and uh, thank you very much for the time today. really enlightening to know what's happening uh, both politically socially and economically and how the bounce back of people's josh would probably roll out to revive our indian economy thank you very much and have a nice day you too thank you for having me it was an honor bye bye